Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Some people read the local paper for news or sports. Others head straight to the opinion columns. That's where you'll find Dick Yarbrough who has never run short of opinions. The iconic and often ironic opinion wielder enters half a million homes in Georgia and addresses more than one million readers each week in 37 newspapers across the state. More often than not, he is welcome. The Georgia Press Association named Dick's column most humorous several times, although some politicians don't appreciate his on-target barbs. But writing a column that runs in so many papers is just one of his talents. He's also author of two books, a former television communications and PR executive and mentor to many UGA journalism students. We welcome Dick Yarborough to our studio on the heels of celebrating his 1,000th column. Congratulations. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks for being here. So what keeps you going? 1,000 columns. Uh, I, I still have opinions yet to be given, and there's still enough humor-impaired people out there that need to hear them. <laughs> humor-impaired people. Well, judging from the feedback you get on your columns, you are either a bedwetting liberal or a redneck bigot or some variety of wig nut. Yes, guilty. <laughs> All of the above? All of the above. Uh, some people have a hard time not categorizing you into a slot, and I take great pride in not being categorized. And when somebody thinks they have me figured out, I head in a totally different direction. So are there any favorite bits of feedback that you've seen from readers or otherwise? Oh, yes. I had one lady who you can hear them sputter through their email who said that she had a new dog. She was going to lay her column down face up and use it for the dog's puppy training, which I was sort of flattered by. I didn't tell her I was on the computer a lot because I didn't want her dog being on the computer. So well, that would mess things it up. It would. So, but anyway, it's it's fun, and uh, I I tell people that if I give out strong opinions, then I deserve to get back strong opinions. And most of my mail, I must say, I'm I'm uh, pleased to say, a lot of people feel like they have a voice in what I say, particularly public education, which mm -hmm. is a big, big issue with me. Well, you're known for having a sense of humor about a lot of different issues, but this is in an age of rancor and bitterness. So is, is a sense of humor, is that a coping strategy? I think it is, and I think a lot of people uh, appreciate that. I, I tell people I know more about politics than anybody in the world, and I'm so willing to tell people. And my wife says nobody cares. Everybody's writing about politics, write about human interest. And so I do. And when I do, I get a tremendous amount of mail. And I think people are kind of relieved. It's like an oasis in the middle of all of this strife and anger and stuff that goes on. And so uh, I try to I, I, I try to be serious, and I take my job very seriously, but I try to take myself not so seriously. You have jumped into some political minefields, however, advocating for the wall. In fact, a few walls to be built, not along the U.S. southern border, but where do you think we uh, need walls? Along the Mason-Dixon line, we have a lot of uh, aliens coming in who uh, put butter on their sandwich bread and... Uh, don't know what collards are or uh, sweet tea and barbecue. And so I think it's a public service to try to either educate them before they cross the wall or 
just have them stay up there where it snows 10 months a year and all the buildings are rusted. And you also advocate for one along the western border. Yes, I do. Uh, uh, people over in Alabama, uh, I just think they need to stay over there and play football. That's about the main thing they do over there, so uh, they're, they're welcome to it. Well, it is not all fun and games. Let's go back to your diary entry. This is July 27, 1996, the single most traumatic day of my 30 years in business, you write. That's the day, or really the early morning, a bomb exploded at Centennial Olympic Park. How do you, how do you remember that now, 23 years later? Uh, it's hard not to remember. We had a, uh, a crisis communication set up where I would be notified, uh, along with Billy Payne, a minute anything of of a variety of of, uh, things that might happen. Uh, Praying to God this would never happen. And it was on the middle Saturday, Friday night, early Saturday, when we thought we had gotten past all of the problems of running the games. And uh, so I got that call that there had been a bomb and they didn't know how many people had been killed at that time. And I remember just being in a daze. And one of the things I remember, and this is interesting, of all the things, I remember being in my automobile driving down uh, I-75 with nobody else on the road. And I looked at my speedometer, and I was doing over 100 miles an hour. And I just remembered that in my head thinking, gosh, I'm going 100 miles an hour. And from there until the next day was simply a blur. It was a bad dream. And it's interesting that so many types of things have happened like that since that it doesn't look that big in today's terroristic uh, potential world. Right. It, two two people killed, there. 100 people injured. But that, yeah. that's actually something that I found very interesting about it. You had, uh, uh, what is it, Billy Rathburn, who was who was Bill, Rathburn, head, Bill right. Rathburn, head of security, and had been working with you for years leading up to that. But they didn't feel like there was going to be a big threat from the outside world. Of course, is before September 11th, many five years before that, uh, because there'd been a lot of warning to look for extremist violence and chatter. And you also didn't think, no, it's not going to happen from a local uh, militia or southeast. Those had been operating in the southeast, and of course, the yeah. Oklahoma City bombing at that time. It's this this absolute unexpected nature of well, it. Well, and we had been warned by uh, federal law enforcement officials, you can't stop a random act of violence. However, they told us they would be quick to catch whoever they, whoever did it. And in this case, it took five years to catch the bomber, and he was caught by a rookie sheriff uh, deputy in North Carolina climbing out of a dumpster. Mm. So that gave me some pause of how good are we at catching these people. I'm speaking with the humorist and award-winning columnist Dick Yarbrough. He's written more than a 1,000 columns for now 37 publications throughout Georgia, but he also is the author of a book called And They Call Them Games, an inside view of the 1996 Olympics. His memoir of his role heading external affairs for the ACOG, that's the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games. Well, you know, Clint Eastwood is working on a film about Richard Jewell, right? The man the FBI falsely and quickly accused as responsible for the bombing, later exonerated. Are you looking forward to seeing that portrayed in a major motion picture? I hope Brad Pitt will play me because we look so much alike. It's <laughs> I was going to ask you. Yeah. If I if I shut my eyes. I, um, if... It's eerie. It really is. It's only about a 50-year difference in our age, but other than that... Uh...
He's the guy. Well, this was a book that, you know, told the story of, of something that you'd pulled off an amazing feat. I mean, a $1.7 billion budget, mostly private race through yeah. private funding, right? Yeah. Um, the Olympics in Atlanta at that time, but also some accusations against you, you know, uh, selling selling Atlanta as a symbol of the New South, but displacing poor residents for the Olympics and um, that kind of thing. I'm wondering, if any of that pushback, how does that feel to you today? We knew at the time we were doing this, Virginia, that the Olympics was a great platform for any special issue that anybody had. So if you had a uh, cross to bear, uh, we were the megaphone in order to do it. And so what you do is just put your head down and do your job, do the best you can do. And uh, what got me into my writing career was a criticism of the city of Atlanta after the games, because I don't think they lived up to their part of the bar. The games, and when you got inside the venue, the games were terrific. Uh, we had more records set than ever been set. And one of the interesting things, it was the advent of uh, equality in women's athletics. We sold more tickets to women's events in 1996 than Barcelona had sold tickets in 1992 primarily because of the uh, inclusion of more women's events and the soccer football competition in Athens uh, had almost 100,000 people to see the women's finals. So though the, the games were great. Uh, the city uh, was like the dog that caught the car. They got it and didn't know what to do with it. And uh, we had traffic problems. We had competing uh, advertising issues with the city. And uh, I, I thought the media coverage was sophomoric. And so I had a chance to tee off on this uh, a couple of years after the games, and I did. And so after having sworn to my wife, I would quit working. Uh, somebody asked me to write a second one, a third one. And so now, 21 years later, You're hooked. I'm, I'm hooked. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did study journalism at UGA, but you were managing PR for one of the country's largest corporations at the time, the Baby Bell, Bell South. Yeah. That and, of course, the Olympic Committee, these are highly visible positions where you're staying on message and free of controversial statements. I mean, that's paramount in those jobs. Now you're doing an opinion column, and you have for 20-odd years now. Mm -hmm. did, do you feel, did you feel untethered? Do you feel like you could say whatever you wanted? I do, and the lawyers can't touch me now, so I don't have to put big words in to obfuscate what I'm saying. But I think, uh, speaking of the University of Georgia, it's interesting to know that the money from the column all go to fellowships in the journalism school at the University so of So you're not making money off of this? I'm not making money off of it at all. I, I send it over there, and the fellowships go to kids— that I could not qualify for one of the fellowships. I'm not smart enough, and uh, these are just bright, bright kids, and they're very sought after, and it gives them a lot of work experience, and it is just the most gratifying thing I do. And I also have a uh, chair in crisis communications mm -hmm. leadership. I want these next generation of young people to be at that table so when a crisis occurs, you ask the lawyer what we should do, and then you ask your, your ex your communications expert, what you should do. So that's a that's a a big civic act, you know, training this next generation. Being a widely read columnist is a very powerful position. And I was moved recently. I read David Brooks' most recent book. He's a well-known columnist, New York Times, and right. also he's on NPR. It's called The Second Mountain. And it was about the personal pitfalls of that position, that you are there's a kind of ego trap in it, that you are always throwing stuff out there and looking for what you're getting back. And in many ways, uh, 
of course, you know, the ego is a necessary construction. You've got something to say. You want to say it. But I wondered if that's anything that you wrestle with in your life. I do. And I was, when I wrote the book on the uh, games, I called Harold Burson, who was chairman of the largest PR firm in the country, and I said, do you have any advice? He said, get your dates right, because if they're wrong, they will always be wrong. And don't hurt people. And so I, uh, I have a wife who uh, monitors that, and sometimes I can get a little testy, and she says, that's very hurtful. She's Don't. your editor? Yeah, she's my editor. I've got some great columns that never made it into print that uh, I walked in one day and said, this is the funniest thing I've ever written. And she looked at it and said, you're not going to put that in the paper. So <laughs> she is a, she's a good monitor for me as to, to keep from getting angry and, and you know hurting somebody. People got families and uh, so I try to moderate that a little bit, and uh, and and you know, and I try to self-deprecate myself so that I don't feel that I'm as important as maybe somebody else would think I am. So you're also something that a lot of people may not know about you. You are an exhibiting artist. Oh, that is my passion. You're a painter. I am a painter. When did you discover that? I discovered it after I retired. I had always sketched and drawn and cartooned. And uh, a neighbor of mine, next door neighbor's fact, said, you should take some art lessons. And I did reluctantly. And I discovered something that, you know, they say old dogs can learn new tricks. And I did. It's the most satisfying, gratifying thing that I think I've ever done is to paint. And I've got a painting down at the Capitol. Uh, I've got uh, a painting at uh, uh, one of the colleges and one of the libraries, and I don't sell them. I give them away and because I, the joy is in painting, not in making any money off of it. So, But I hope to continue to do that for some time to come. So in addition to mentoring students and your work with the crisis management, uh, what's something you would tell your college student self? slow down a little bit and smell the roses. Uh, I'm in my third career now, so I did not take my own advice, but uh, just enjoy life, uh, particularly while you're in college. What a unique experience that is. So that's my advice that I do give to the kids. You know, learn how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and enjoy the time you're here. Dick Yarborough, an old dog, <laughs> learning another trick. Thank you so right, much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been enjoyable. Dick Yarborough, legendary Georgia columnist. He's written more than 1,000 columns for dozens of publications around the state. Here's to 1,000 more. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Recreational genetics is a thing. An estimated 26 million people worldwide have dug into their ancestry with the help of at-home DNA kits like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. But finding your family story requires more than learning ethnic percentages from a DNA swab. And that's where genealogist Kenyatta Berry comes in. You may have seen her on PBS's Genealogy Roadshow. Is this famous Bugs Roberts of St. Louis, the same as your great-grandfather, Daddy Bugs Roberts. So let's look at the second part of that article we had. One of the big things it mentions is who his surviving family is. Oh. Tell me if you recognize a name. Of course, your great-grandmother. 
Kenyard is here for the Atlanta History Center's Juneteenth celebration and joins us to talk about the Family Tree Toolkit. It's her new book detailing the multiple websites and sources for building out the roots and branches of your family tree and joins us in the studio. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I'm, I'm thinking of Ancestry.com, FamilySearch.com, Find My Past, <laughs> all these websites. They've sunk millions of dollars into making records mm-hmm. available and DNA tests, of course, flourishing. What do you think is behind this boom in genealogical research? Well, I think a couple of things are behind the boom. Um, one is genealogy TV. It's a genre. You have Genealogy Roadshow, Finding Your Roots, um, Who Do You Think You Are, Relative Race. So all of these shows have really put genealogy in the forefront, and people are very interested in understanding their family history. And DNA is something that is often on sale <laughs> and is affordable. Good and, marketing. Yeah, good marketing. And Ancestry and 23andMe uh, do put a lot of money into marketing those DNA tests. So I think we've seen it become more accessible. And with records being available online, it's much easier for people to find their family history. So they're finding their family history, but it often counters the stories they've told about their families. That's something that comes up over (laughs) and over again. Yes. So uh, one of the things we always try to prove or disprove is a family story. Um, For African-American genealogy and for anyone really doing genealogy, oral history is kind of your foundation where you start. And then you get the records to either prove or disprove that, whether it's vital records, uh, census records, birth, marriage death records, wills and estates, and kind of use those to help flush out that family story. So where did this all begin for you? You were a law student in Lansing, Michigan. (laughs) What motivated you to study genealogy? Uh, So I actually started, not like most people, I started doing my ex-boyfriend's family. Um, while I was in law school, and his family is actually from Augusta, Atlanta. So his second great aunt was Dr. Georgia DeWelly, and she had the first um, OBGYN clinic on Sweet Auburn Avenue for African-American women. Wow. Yeah, so she's pretty well known in this area. So I started my research um, with his family because they had an unusual surname of DeWelly. So I thought this would be something that's good to try because my name, Barry, and I thought my family, they were just farmers in upstate New York, so they were kind of boring. Um, but I was able to find a lot of information about his family and their history here in Atlanta. Well, you're hitting on something, too. Everybody wants to find their connection to, you know, Johnny Appleseed or to <laughs> Harriet Tubman or something like right, that. Right, right. Yeah, and every family has a story. What I found out later on as I started doing my family history is my family actually has a unique story. They started in Culpeper County, Virginia, where they were enslaved, and then they moved to up state New York. What's unique about it is that a number of African Americans from Culpeper half stayed in Culpeper County and the other half moved to upstate New York. And when I read that, I was stunned because you're talking about Genesee County. I've been up there. Yes, I mean, I know. this is like way, way upstate. Way this upstate. is in western New York. Yes. It's yes. almost to the Great Lakes. It is. And I just thought, how did all of these people, these African Americans, end up there? So there's a story. Um, it was interesting. Um, it's a story of a family called the Harmon family. And so apparently after they were after the Civil War, they saw these African-American men that uh, needed work. So they said that they had land that they could farm in upstate New York. So they paid for them to go to upstate and half of the men went to upstate New York and then sent for their families. And that's how most African-Americans that I'm related to got to uh, Leroy, Caledonia in that area. OK, so let's pretend we're on Genealogy Roadshow. OK. What's the most notable thing about your own story? The most notable thing about my own story. Or what would you pick out to tell somebody? Yeah, I, you know, what's, it's interesting on my dad's side of the family. Um, they were enslaved in Arkansas. And one of my ancestors died with two oil wells on his property. In Arkansas. In Arkansas in about 1946. And when he died, he had no children. 
and his father was enslaved. So what was interesting is to find his, uh, you know, people that could inherit his brothers and sisters, they had to recognize the slave marriages because slaves are not allowed to get married. So because his father had two different wives because he was on two different plantations, I came from one of those lines, the Patsy line. And so my great-grandmother was able to inherit because the uh, Supreme Court in Arkansas legitimize that marriage. Oh, you have just opened up so many things here. You know, first of all, you know, the records, the courts, the uh-huh. and, and the traditions and what yeah. was allowed and what wasn't allowed. Yeah. Now, for you, you mentioned Diwali. You know, it's uh-huh. a it's a less less common yes. surname. Mm-hmm. Now, oftentimes slaves did not have surnames or they just inherited the surnames of the, the people who enslaved them. Well, Sometimes they did. Sometimes they more times they didn't. So most uh, enslaved people either chose a name like Freeman or Freedman. Um, if they had an unusual surname like Dewelly or Simpkins, and that was the enslaver, they took that name. But a name like Barry Carter or Jones, you can't assume that that was the name of the last enslaver. Mm. So a lot of times I tell people to use the Freedman's Bureau records to find labor contracts between um, slaves and their former enslavers. All right. That's an interesting thing, too, that oftentimes, you know, these people, many of these people, their lives were not thought to be worth charting or, mm-hmm. or carrying. Mm-hmm. But as property, it yes. was a whole different thing. Yes. So what do you find in those kind of records? So as property, um, there were records related to enslaved people. And a lot of those records are going to be under the enslaver, the person who owned them. And they would be listed in wills. They're in deeds. Uh, tax records as well. So court records, a huge place to find information about enslaved people, because a lot of times if there were slave traders uh, that had a dispute, they would actually list all the enslaved people that they bought and sold and the profits related to them. It's interesting to talk about it. And because I went to law school, I often tell people, it's not that I'm not sensitive to it, but as a lawyer, you're taught to remove emotion from a situation. So for me to be able to do the work and talk about it in such a matter-of-fact way, I can remove emotion from it. But it's still emotional to see. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at a list of human beings Beings, treated as chattel. Yes. Did it feel differently when you found your relatives on those manifests? Absolutely. It felt very different to see my family as opposed to when I'm seeing other people's families. I'm doing work for clients or for the show. So yeah, it's kind of surreal once you think about it. And sometimes I have to just step away from the computer (laughs) take a walk uh, in Santa Monica. But uh, it is definitely work that's important, and which is why I continue to do it. All right. You also said that this this relative of yours had been, um, you know, there were a couple of different marriages. And Mm -hmm. that's a whole thing, too, that families were broken apart. So what is that? What is that inform? How does that inform your looking at a family tree? So it's interesting, because you have to look at sort of the families were torn apart during the domestic slave trade. So about almost a million enslaved people were forcibly removed from the upper south. So we think about Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, to the lower south, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And when you're doing a family tree, it's difficult because you have to help people find their people. So you kind of go with what you know. And then DNA has actually helped in that way, um, with cousin matches. Because typically, if you're African-American doing genealogy and you get to a third cousin match, you're already into slavery. So that could be someone, for example, whose child was sold down the river 
and this is now a relative of yours, which you have to figure out how you're related. Which you found in your life, right? You yes. found somebody who was, what, second cousin? Yes, yes. So I found people in my family history. Um, and in doing DNA, it helped me verify the work that I was doing already, right? So I did the paper trail first, and then the DNA helped verify the cousins. And I found a bunch of other cousins. And I've been able to connect with people in upstate New York uh, through DNA and through my research and tell them a lot about our family history and learn more about my great-grandmother who was born in Leroy. All right, let's get to that. Too. I'm speaking with Kenyatta Berry. She's co-host of Genealogy Roadshow on PBS and also author of The Family Tree Toolkit. It's a new guide to uncovering your ancestry and researching genealogy. And Kenyatta, you write in the introduction that with dedication and work, an African-American genealogist can reconstruct the past. You are one, an mm-hmm. African-American ge- genealogist. Is this an expanding field? It is. I think as the records become more available and uh, people understand how to do the research, it definitely is um, an expanding field. And that's the reason, one of the reasons I wrote the book, right? Because when I started, there really wasn't a guide for kind of beginners to start out. And I think a lot of people feel for African-American genealogy, it's overwhelming. We've talked about slavery. That's something that people feel like they can't get past the 1870 brick wall. Um, But it's an area as... Ancestry, Find My Past, uh, Family Search, and all those uh, companies continue to expand their record set and make them available online, then it becomes easier, I think, for uh, genealogists. It makes me wonder how Alex Haley did it, right? <laughs> when he was writing Roots 40 years ago or something yeah, like that. Went to a lot of courthouses. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the other interesting things that came up in your research, Thomas Bundy, brother of Charles, who was yes. in your line, a cook for the Confederate Army? Yes, so that so that's the thing with Thomas Bundy. This is always very we did this on Genealogy Road Show. It's very controversial around African Americans and their service, per quote se, unquote. quote unquote, uh, in the Confederate Army. But there's this story that goes with Thomas Bundy in that he was born a free person of color and in Middlesex County, Virginia. And the story goes that he was uh, captured by um, an infantry in New York. And then he was made to cook for them. And then he was taken back by the Confederate in Virginia, and then captured again by New York. So this is a story that's told in upstate New York, right? And he was this honorary member, I think, of the 108th Infantry. So it was just very interesting because he died uh, fairly young, and I don't know enough about his family, but I'm often wondering why someone, a free person of color, would even be a part of that. So he's a story that I continue to explore. All right. So there are all these little gaps. And you tell, you warn us. You say that there will be these gaps, yeah. these people who will evade you or stories will yes. evade you. Yes. How, do you get, how do you get to the other side of that? Well, I mean, I, always talk, I also talk about your genealogy angels, right? There are people who will always help you find stuff. So one of the ways to fill in the gaps is, especially with something like Thomas Bundy, is to really kind of take that story and, you know, just tear it apart in a sense. Look at every piece of it and say, okay, is this really true? Were they, you know, were were they in the same area that Thomas was in at this particular point in time, right? So you really have to take a very tactical approach, very analytical approach to kind of get to the truth in the bottom of the story. Now, sometimes you may not be able to find those records, Um, And that's one of the things that I think people need to know going into this research. But you really have to take the story with a grain of salt and say, how can I prove or disprove this story to be true? Mm -hmm. So there's the lawyer coming in again, (laughs) removing the emotion and getting to the facts. Yes. And it is kind of like detective work. It is. Um, 
or an, you know, an ancestor for two hundred from two hundred years ago lived mm-hmm. on another continent. So let's talk about where to start. And in your toolkit, you ask people to answer some basic questions, which I get. You know, where were your parents born? Where were mm-hmm. they married? But others, your favorite nursery rhymes, your favorite subjects in school. What what smells remind you of childhood? Why why do you urge us to do that? Because that gets you to know you get to know the person more. You know, I mean. When, you know, I was asking those questions to my mom, I was surprised with some of her answers um, because I just would never think about talking to her about that. Right. You know, you sometimes when you get into genealogy, you just get the names, dates and places. But it's more about the person and you want to tell their story. Right. And you want to get to know more about them. Genealogy is really about storytelling and re kind of uh, giving that ancestor a voice. Mm. And I think it's really important when you start to interview people to, to learn just more about them as a person. And I think it brings you much closer. And you do point us to online resources for guidance for yes. interviewing relatives. Are people often willing to tell the stories? I mean, I know in my family, there were a lot of secrets. You know, yes. there was a, a mar- uh, there was a birth not too many months after a marriage. There was a yeah. divorce and, you mm-hmm. know, all these kind of things that just were not talked about. Yeah. So not a lot of people um, are, well, some people are secretive. Let me just say that. I will say in my own family, my Barry line. So I have my mother's maiden name. And my grandfather is still alive, and I often talk about this all the time, and I tell him about it all the time. He will not give me any information on the Berry family. And my Berry family is from Macon, Georgia, and I get nothing from him. He's 93 years old. I have no idea why. I have tried and tried and tried. I said I'm on TV. People expect me to know. and But granddad is not giving up that information. Um, so it's been kind of difficult. A lot of times I uh, counsel people to say, well, I really want to know for medical reasons, right? Mm-hmm. I really want to know for health reasons. And to also let people know you're not trying to find this information out because you want to expose a secret. You're finding it out for yourself, for your identity, for your own story. And kind of breaking that down so they understand you're not doing something malicious, I think, kind of helps. Yeah. And you did find that your second great-grandfather, I think it was, you thought that he was enslaved in one county, but it was actually another. How yes. did you figure that out? So he was in a voter um registration for, I believe it was 1867, and he was in Houston County, Georgia. Um, and so that's interesting. Yes. Six, 1867, Seven, you yeah. know, Reconstruction, I'm sure the first roles of African-American voters. voters. Yes, yes. So it was uh, Lewis Kendrick. Yep. So I was pretty excited to find that. Um, and that was something, those are available online, which is great. Um, and I also think I've identified, which I did not write about in the book, but I think I've identified his enslaver, who was Jones Kendrick, uh, through a will. That I looked at that took about four hours. So yeah, I'm thinking of Edward Ball's book, Slaves in the Family, yes. right? Who wrote about his he's white man, mm-hmm. but like what happens to people when they find out they're you know whether you're related to someone who's enslaved or someone who is an enslaver? What is that emotional process like? I imagine you're part mm-hmm. psychologist in these cases too. I am, yes. Um, and I think for those whose family uh, owned slaves or enslavers, a lot of times I've heard people say they feel shame. They feel guilt. They don't want to talk about it. And I always say, you know what? We're just trying to find our people. That's really it. We're trying to reconnect and reconstruct these family units that were torn apart. So if your family did own slaves, that was part of, you know, being very loyally. It was just what happened, right? And if you have this information, there's someone out there that's looking for it. The most difficult thing for African-American genealogy is finding the last enslaver. And if your family owns slaves and you're able to make that connection for us, then we're appreciative, right? And some people will have a negative response to it. I mean, that's going to happen. But nine times out of ten, most people are, are 
excited that you're actually helping them find their people and reconstruct their family unit. All right, Kenyatta Berry, please stay with us. We'd love to hear more from you. Kenyatta Berry is co-host of Genealogy Roadshow on PBS. She's also author of The Family Tree Toolkit. It's a guide to uncovering your ancestry and researching your genealogy. So we're heading into a short break, but Kenyatta, I want to note, was here for the Atlanta History Center. They had a Juneteenth celebration all throughout the weekend, and she was helping people there. Well, we're getting her on Monday morning and seeing how she can help us find our own roots. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please stay with us. I'm continuing my conversation with Kenyatta Berry. She's a genealogy expert. She's co-host of Genealogy Roadshow program on PBS. She specializes in tracing African-American families, but her book, The Family Tree Toolkit, is a comprehensive guide for anyone of any ethnic background to uncover their ancestry and their family story. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Let's keep going. Here is a scene from an episode of Genealogy Roadshow that you filmed in Houston. What I also want to point out to you in this document is it says James Dearman, his mark. And you know, Mm. slaves were not allowed to read or write, but he knew how to write. Oh, my goodness. Ah, That gives so much pride. Ah, That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Kenyatta, do you have a favorite episode of Genealogy Roadshow or a favorite discovery? I do. Um, and so my favorite discovery is a woman, um, Gail Lukasek, and she was in, um, I believe it was season two of Genealogy Roadshow. And the thing I liked about Gail's story is um, it kind of changed her life. Her mother um, was from New Orleans, was a very fair-skinned African-American woman, and then moved to Ohio, and she passed for white. And Gail's father never knew. Gail started doing research on her family and got her mom's birth certificate and realized that her mother was listed as Negro. She wrote to Louisiana. They said, this is correct. And when Gail confronted her mother, her mother denied it, but then finally said, you can't tell anyone till I die. And her mother died, and four months later, she was sitting across from me on Genealogy Roadshow. Wow, powerful mm-hmm. story. Yeah, yeah, it's my, yes. It's and and that's so interesting, like how she was recorded on her birth certificate, especially in a place like New Orleans, yes. where there yes. was so much, um, you know, relatively racial mixing. Yeah, absolutely. Time. And we did uh, Gail's DNA, and I mean, she had, you know, all of what New Orleans could offer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, French, Spanish, and African ancestry. But her mother just chose to kind of walk away from that life, and Gail never really knew any of her relatives. Because her mother chose to pass. Well, so your work is all about filling in those gaps, not mm-hmm. just the DNA, but the real story. And one of the places that you send us to is the census. Um, yes. There's constitutional mandate beginning in 1790. Now, th- there's also a guide here to what kind of questions were asked on the census over time. That's fascinating to me. What kind of things are revealed in that? Well, census records can offer you a lot of information. Um, Obviously, the occupation of the person, um, of your ancestor, whether they rented or owned a farm uh, free of a mortgage, uh, if they had a radio. I believe that's in 1930 they asked about that. Um, 1940, if they lived in the same place in 1935, if they were unemployed, um, you know, ages. 
uh, birth dates, different things like that. But the census, I do caution with census records, um, you will find inconsistencies with ages all the time. Uh-huh. All the time. Someone will be 50 in 1920, and then they're 65 in 1930. <laughs> I don't know what happens, but just be cautious about that. Well, you also give guides to state census, and yes. but also to, to look at family Bibles mm-hmm. and vital records and court records, obituaries and prayer cards. Now, I'm somebody who just cleaned out a barn full of stuff, and I had been, because I had a whole bunch of space, I was the inheritor for my family. Mm. And I have to tell you, I looked at these things, and I thought, okay, Marie Kondo would say <laughs> I have to throw these out. But, but what do you keep? Well, I think I think you keep obituaries. I mean, I I really like them. My cousin, um, my cousin upstate New York that I just met a couple of years ago, her mom kept a bunch of obituaries, and she thought it was morbid. And when I went to visit her, I was like, "Bring out that box, okay? Because I want to see this." Um, so I think you keep obituaries. You keep the the family heirlooms. I always tell people to make sure you digitize things that you have if you can, and keep them in a um, a safe, um, so that they don't get damaged by you know, natural disasters or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But also just recording those family stories is super important as well. Well, so much is revealed about American history, too, that, you know, court records, for example, these these were real centers of communities. Absolutely. Yes. The courthouse. If you're not in a burned county and burned counties are (laughs) there, a lot of them. So. Yeah. When did that happen? The Burn counties was a civil civil war. During a lot of it was during the civil war, and some just happened, you know, just by accident. But if you have a Burn County, most more than likely during the civil war, then those records, especially as it relates to wills and estates and uh, different court records uh, for especially for African Americans, they won't exist. Um, so there's some other census substitutes and different things you can do to get through Burn counties. There's a whole section on that, um, and I talk about that a little bit. In the book, but the courthouse was the center of where all the all the action took place, right? Where everything was recorded, and that's why. And a lot of those records have not been digitized, so it's important to go to the county courthouse hmm. to plan so you, a trip. You, you have okay. So this is what you did. You yes. uh, you went to places. You went to Culpeper County. Yes. You went to upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also I, I had no idea there was such a vast repository digitally of sites for people who'd been imprisoned or who'd been in yes. trouble. <laughs> kind of a fascination with that. <laughs> yes, there is. It's funny. I was actually just working uh, with some of those records. Uh, and so on Ancestry, they do have records for uh, Texas and California. So you can see the state prison registries. You can see what they were charged with, their sentence, if they died in prison, what how they died. Um, I mean, it's just it's fascinating because you kind of look at it and you can see some repeat offenders if you start doing uh-huh. research and you think, huh, this person lived to be 70. But when they were 20, they were in and out of jail, you know, in their 20s. So it's just it's just fascinating to learn more about the person they started to come to life. Yeah, I just talked to a guest a couple of weeks ago. You know, his family had all thought that they were, you know related to Daniel Boone, but he found that there were horse thieves and, you know, drunkards. And, you know, the the way that we sort of, the stories we carry, as you were saying earlier. But there is also a really interesting distinction here that I didn't, hadn't thought about Mm -hmm. between pre-1820 records and Mm post-1820 records. Mm -hmm. What's what's going on there? What happened in history? Well, there was obviously, a lot of times there was changes in which the information that they collected, right? So, um, 
different changes in uh, laws, different things related to immigration. So they started to collect more information post-1820, right? And then you also got to think of the record set uh, pre-1820, right? You're getting into colonial research. That's a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of those records are going to be in societies and places like the New England Historic Genealogical Society, New York um, Genealogical and Biographical Society. So some of those records are a little bit more difficult to access and to analyze. And especially in the work that I do, I often don't get back that far. I mean, the oldest person I've gotten in my family is my fifth great grandmother was born in 1800. But even getting more on her uh, is is a tad bit difficult. So when you're doing this research, it's important to understand the laws at the time. That's why being a lawyer comes in handy, because those laws impact the information that was collected on the census, the information that was collected as, as far as immigration was concerned, um, and different things at the courthouse, uh, laws related to free people of color, slavery, everything. The laws govern, you know, America governs our society. So it's important to know the laws of the state you're researching. Well, and also a lot of people were in colonial America because they were sent there. It was a penal colony for the most part. Yeah. And they were indentured servants. So there's records. Tell me more about indentured servants. So indentured servants uh, typically came here. Someone paid their way and then they had a a term of servitude, uh, typically seven years on average. Some were... um, less. And when you're a dentured server, there should be a contract. I give some resources for that. And you were to work off that payment of your way and housing and all of that within that time period. And then you were able to, you know, go on and work on your own, get your own farm and build your life in America. Um, So there were some both, um, you know, there were some Africans that came as indentured servants as well. Very few, but some that did. And so those records are um, available, as I said, at other societies as well as Family Search, I believe, has some stuff too. There's some interesting, uh, if you're of Native American descent, and that's another interesting thing. Yes. A lot of people in the Southeast claim to be of Native American descent. First of all, why is that? Well, everyone wants to be Native American, actually. It's not just in the Southeast. Okay, that, I always make the joke. Is that right? Yeah, I always make the joke that when I was, uh, I remember we did an episode of Genealogy Roadshow, and this woman was sitting in in front of me and she's very pale skin she had freckles and red hair and she says I'm Native American and I was like no you're not it's like, you are not I don't even need to look at your DNA but I don't understand I think it's just a, it's one of those stories everyone always tells me that they've heard that they're Native American and I think it's just something that's been passed down it's typically oh she had the high cheekbones and she used to wear hair two braids I had this whole thing in my family right <laughs> and I don't have any Native American ancestry um, but it's that story that's been carried down for some reason and I think a lot of it. Uh, one thing that most people don't know is that Native Americans actually um, owned slaves. So the Cherokee, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, and those same enslaved folks walked the Trail of Tears with the Native Americans um, when they were making their way out west. Kenyatta Berry is my guest. She's a, she's a lawyer, she's a television personality, and author of the Family Tree Toolkit, which we're talking about right now. Okay, so you've just reminded me of something in the book. The Georgia Land Lotteries. Mm-hmm. This is a direct... Uh, Affront, I guess, to Native American ancestry. What was that? When did that happen? So there were several. There's probably about seven different land lotteries, I think. And I got, I first discovered the Georgia land lotteries because George Henry DeWelly, who I started my research with, his father, C.J. Cook, was a white man, Caleb J. Cook, from Massachusetts. And he participated in one of the Georgia land lotteries. And that's how he got his land. And then at some point, he acquired George's mother, Mary Thomas. And they had a child, George Henry DeWelly. And those are only two enslaved people that he had 
um, that he owned during his lifetime. Uh-huh. And so the land lotteries were really people taking opportunity to come out here and farm um, and build sort of a new life. And it was interesting him being from Massachusetts to come to Georgia uh, to kind of start that life and then um, have enslaved people. Yeah, so, and it, like the, the the Homesteading Act later, yes, exactly. right? exactly, yes, like the Homesteading Act later. Um, and it was kind of the opening up, you know, you see the the opening up of the West, right, with the removal of the Native Americans uh, to, to the West, you see the growth in, and that's um, in Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, where people start to come and build plantations, right? And they start to move the enslaved people from the Upper South to the Lower South. And that all happens in the 1830s. Right. And mm-hmm. so after the, you know, the Trail of Tears, all of this all land of is available. All this land is available and people start to come and say, well, you know, cotton is king. So we're going to do a plantation and cotton required uh, was hard work. Um, and so a lot of the enslaved people uh, died early on. So they needed more. So they would just come and build plantations. You see, if you do research, you see a lot of people coming from the Carolinas uh, really into this area and especially Alabama and Mississippi. So you're learning a lot about America. We get a few civics lessons, certainly, in this book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Learn how court systems work, th- that kind of thing, vital records, and mm-hmm. how they all fold into this sense of a society um, building at different stages. Uh what is you, what what did you learn about American history as you're looking at this? A lot. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I think, um, you know, I really wasn't a history buff until I started doing genealogy. And I wanted to know more about what was going on at that time. And I was surprised. My biggest chapter, one of my biggest chapters, is immigration and naturalization. I remember writing the book in 2016. I was just devouring, like, all this information on all the different immigration laws. And I wrote the book in a way that I wanted people to not only understand how to do genealogy, but to learn something, to understand how their ancestors fit within history. And for me... It was interesting to learn about a lot of immigration laws, but also I did a big portion of my book on Confederate pension records. So that was very interesting because in Mississippi, there are actually African-Americans who have pensions. For, for serving in the Confederate yeah, Army. Yeah, for being a part of it, whether whatever whether they're building something, but they actually have pension records. And I think a lot of people don't know that, and those records are available online. So that was very interesting because you start to understand kind of more about uh, the Civil War, more about history, and how your family fits into American history. Mm. And so I find it really fascinating. I wanted to make sure that folks learned a little while they're doing their research. So I'm wondering if somebody gets started with, you You said you did the paperwork first, then the DNA yes. test. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people do begin with the DNA they test, do. and yeah. that piques their interest. Now, people have helped solve cold cases and crimes yes. with DNA tests. But there are also families who are reluctant. So what's your advice to somebody who wants to search their family roots but doesn't really trust putting their uh, his or her DNA out there? Well, I would say start the traditional way. Just start with the paper. Start with the census records. Start with the vital records. And vital records are going to be your birth, marriage, and your death records. Um, one thing to consider when you're looking at death records, I always say they're only as good as the informant. Okay, so the person who was given the information at that time of death, they may not know the person's uh, name. I mean, just before I came on, I was looking at the death record for Reverend George Henry Dewelly. His daughter gave his father's name as J.E. Dewelly. Okay, mm-hmm. I know from research in an interview that he said who his father was, C.J. Cook. So just right there, you can see how those records are only as good as the informant. But start with the traditional paperwork. And that way, you don't have to give your DNA to someone, but you're still finding out about your ancestors and telling their story. 
What are some common mistakes you notice people making when they're just starting out on their genealogy, their own genealogy roadshow? <laughs> uh, the most common one, and I am guilty of it myself, is citing your sources. Please cite your sources. Where did you get this information from? Was it from your great aunt? Was it your grandmother or your mother? Was it from this document? Cite your sources as much as you can, because when you go back to that tree, you're going to wonder years later, where did that come from? So I think that's the biggest mistake. And I also think people, another mistake is attacking your tree, if you have a tree online, to someone else's tree. Hmm. What do so, you mean by that? So what I mean by that is, for example, on Ancestry, you have a tree on Ancestry.com. Someone else has a family tree on Ancestry. And they pop up and say, oh, these two trees match. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will just take that information from that second tree as fact. Uh-huh. But you don't know that person. You don't know if they cited their sources. You don't know where they got that information. And I find a lot of times my clients do that as well. But then that could be a fake news tree. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And what happens is you take those mistakes and you continue, you put them in your tree, right? So there's, you know, children being born after the father has died and just dates and things that are wrong. So just don't attach to someone's tree unless you know that person, but do the research on your own so you can have the proof to tell that story. We have just half a minute left, but you know, there's just this powerful scene of you going to the home in upstate New York mm-hmm. of your great, 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 mm-hmm. three greats? I can't uh, remember. My great-grandfather. Yeah. Great-grandfather. Three, three greats, yeah. The home is still intact, and you walk in, and, and, and you see it. I mean, and you are you can imagine them there. What has this brought to your life, you know, this, this concept of yeah. where people were and the lives that they live? You know, it's really, it's been great. For me, it's the upstate New York connection is that I've been able to build that bridge. So my great-grandmother was born in upstate New York and moved to Detroit where I was born. My mother and my grandmother were born. When she died in 1983, we really didn't have that connection to my cousin. So being able to go there and have that connection to that family and tell those family stories and share the information with them has really changed my life. And it's brought made it very rich for me to know that I've stepped in their footsteps and, you know, kind of given them a voice and been able to tell their stories when they've been lost to history. All right. So, Kenyatta Berry, thank you so much for thank speaking you. with us. She's co-host of Genealogy Roadshow on PBS, also author of The Family Tree Toolkit, a guide to uncovering covering your ancestry and researching genealogy. We did get a tweet from Laura on Twitter looking for suggestions for white people lo- trying to locate ancestors of slaves that are family-owned. That is all in the book as well. It is. This is all we have time for at the moment. Well, we do thank you so much for joining us for On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. See you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.